Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your host, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. I am Alex Gore, and I'm here with Lance Psycho. No funny business. No funny business today. Wow, what a boring... What is it, just end of August, dog days of summer? Tired of it, Al? Getting too hot? I'm just ready to rock. Oh, okay. Cool. Speaking of rock, rocking, it's not Revit Rocket Ship (laughs) that we need to rock. It's Architect to Builders course, right? It's going to give you a backdrop of how to make that transition, what to do, what, what not to do, and how and and how to do it there's a lot of things i think the biggest fear of making leaps is not knowing what you don't know right and always having that anxiety there so laying it out uh basically systematically of how you should approach it uh what not to miss i think is very very helpful we also do something that i feel like is very unique we relate everything you do towards how it's going to happen in construction so it helps connect that one-to-one when you're planning so that means when you're doing the budget, we don't order it in the same uh, the spec formats. We order it in, hey, what's going to happen first? What's going to happen third, fourth, fifth, sixth, things like that. So little nuances like that. We've had great reviews from it. So if you're ever thinking about making the transition, um, it's financially uh, more profitable per project. Um, there's more risk, but there is more reward. Um, there's more control uh, and there's double reward meaning not just reward from doing the actual project, but having the confidence to improve your other architecture projects and maybe gain more clients um, because they know that you have that knowledge. So go to architects guide to architects guide to.com. I also want you to head over to arccat.com today. Check those guys out because BIM can be important for your next project. But it's not the only thing you need for your next project, Al. Oh, That's no. right. Oh, they man. have they have almost everything. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data for your project needs. That means 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in specification, and in a patented spec wizard and or have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM. Don't do that. Don't do that. Go to arcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free without registering. That's my favorite part. It's free, F-R-E-E, no registration, no data mining. Go to arcat.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com today, and you'll start building better content, I promise. Uh, I want everybody to go on a journey with me. If you are watching on the YouTube, I highly encourage you to watch on the YouTube, um, even if it's just for this part. So I want everybody to go to youtube.com. Okay, then I want you to type in redefine boundaries with a luxury division of Pella. Check out this amazing commercial that they have for for their luxury division because you've never experienced a brand like them before. The collection of brands within the luxury division of Pella are the conversation starters, the pioneers of the industry who provide window and door solutions to discerning architects, the building industry, and beyond. They have decades of experience creating things like no one else in the world is creating, and the collection of brands are brought together to complement and build on one another. They don't push beyond the limits. They set them. Explore PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm. That's PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm. And don't forget to check out that awesome video, uh, the commercial that they have. It's called Redefine Boundaries with the Luxury Division of Pella. If you're watching this on YouTube, you would have seen me just do a voiceover of that commercial on the YouTube. Check them out. Al Gore. That's awesome. Um, I think we're gonna st- we're gonna talk about this uh, rehash the do's and don'ts of being a, a developer or being on a development team. Oh, yes, being on a development team. I think that's part of it, right? So we aren't developing. We are just we are architects plus builders at this point in our lives, and uh, but we do work with a lot of developers. Yep. So um, we've talked about this before, but I think we're getting a different perspective from being on the team rather than be- leading the team. And do you want to give some background about 
you know, this project or, or, or not, or just talking in, in generals? Yeah. So uh, we are the architects on a very large project in northern Colorado. It is a mixed-use project. It's got um, uh, commercial, it's got residential units, and uh, for this little town that is being developed in, it will basically double the size of the town. Gotcha, gotcha. So okay. huge. Okay. So, so kind of contentious from that standpoint, too. I think that's one of the things we want to talk about here is like... When you, when you are, no matter what, you, you, you're going to have to, at the beginning of the development process, you send out neighbor, you send out notifications to neighbors and no one likes change. The general public is very resistant to change. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you're spending millions of dollars and on this. And I think what you need to know, whether you're just part of the team or doing it yourself is like every project, because I could see as a veteran, you forgetting every project you need to bring your a game to this first initial public meeting. And it's just like Aaron Rodgers has been doing playing football for 20 years. I don't know. Sure. Something like that. Do you think he can ever not bring his a game when he's playing against another professional football team at all? Like every single time you have to bring your a game and you have to set it up and you have to do some things uh, in the background to make that meeting successful. Yes. So what would be your steps? Uh, the f- so the number one step I would, I would take is who is going to be the face outward? Who is going to be the, def- the face to, to the public? Is it going to be you, the developer, or is it going to be someone that you hire? And so having a, t- and then, and then once you decide who's the face, maybe, maybe both of you are the face. So maybe the planner the private planner, right? Landscape architect, urban planner, uh, someone like civil engineer, even sometimes sure. in, in that case. And, and on these bigger architect, architect sometimes too. Yep. They, they could do it too. Um, who, once you establish who's, who's, who's the face of it, whether, whether it's in conjunction or not, then what is the team strategy from there? And, and really, I think you need to be transparent with everybody included all the way down. Let's say, let's say it is a, a landscape architect or a planner, urban planner and the architect is sort of just doing the architecture. Sure. I think you need to be transparent with them and help them understand like what is their role? Do you want them there at the meetings? What is the strategy for this? Is are you as the leader, let's say you let's say it's the developer who's the face of this. Are you meeting with city the city council members of planning and zoning commissioners uh, privately to understand where they're at and what their goals, their hot buttons are? And what you need to do possibly for your development moving ahead to try to get it approved uh, and and while you're still maintaining your profitability, still maintaining your goals, that way everybody's on the same page and nobody's left in the dark, maybe overstepping in one way or the other. Yep. So I'm going to lay out what I think are the recurring three main hangups of all these developments. And then maybe we can go into strategies to tackle them. The first one is popularity. And what that literally means is how many people are showing up for your side? How many people are saying good things versus bad things? And the, and what I mean by that is like the bad things can be all over the board. Like it could, uh, one people like for one of our projects, like they were being racist and, uh, classes against people. And like everyone could see it too. It was, but (laughs) they were against the project. Um, So what's the popularity? How many people do you have in the room? How many people do you have saying things for your side? And sometimes who are those people matters too. The second is traffic and I'll go. Oh my gosh. Yes. Traffic into that. And the, um, the third is aesthetics, right? So can I say my two kind of solutions for traffic and aesthetics? I think every time this comes up, there's that neighborhood meeting, right? And all of a sudden, the neighborhood gets a meeting notice and they're like, okay, what's going on? <clears throat> and then they might see some renderings or, or something and be like, holy cow, they're going to build this. They're going to build this in my neighborhood. And it hits them suddenly. And they think that this is just some quick, fast change, right? Yes. They think it's already built. <laughs> they think it's already I built. I mean, in a, in a way, in a metaphorically yep. speaking. Yep. And I would talk to the city council members or the planning people separately and say, this is going to come up. Um, 
I just want to give you some background. Not only did you know we design it and then engage traffic engineers, but what the public doesn't know is that a lot of times there's a whole process with city staff and consultants before any of this gets built. And it goes back to planning and zoning. And they, they literally in the city make zones and then they do analysis and then see what kind of roads they need for those zones to fit the needs for that zones. There's different levels of streets, artillery streets, uh, feeder streets, all that. So it could have been 20 years ago that they planned that this area can hold this type of thing for this zone. So when an owner buys something <laughs> that's zoned that way, it is made for that use. Mm -hmm. So not only is it made for that use, it, um, so it, it, it already complies. We always, we do traffic studies on top of it just to double check. So when you hear this from, from, uh, the normal layperson, like they might not know the amount of thought and effort. That's so I think I, here, here's, here, here's, here's the point. One of the points that I want to bring up with that is that you, as the team leader, then I don't care who it is with this, with this development team is you need to understand and put yourself in the position of a layperson, even though planners included, like you have to unpack that for them, the history and before the origin of even buying the property and, and prove to them that this isn't a, this isn't, we aren't just throwing this in here and something that hasn't been thought about to be able to throw in here. We've already thought about all of these externalities to be able to foster putting this here on this site. And if you can't meet with them beforehand, I hope in this, like they, the development team gets to speak first. Yes. And puts that clearly, right? This, because then and they usually do. Then, yep. Then when, um, then when everyone comes and complains about the traffic, the, the plan review board is sitting there be like, yeah, but this is, this has already been accounted for, you know? So like your point is mute. Second thing is, is aesthetics, right? So essentially aesthetics, it, you can't judge style. It's impossible to judge. It's style. too subjective. You, you need to judge, uh, quality, like a uh, quality of materials and then like nuance of, of like detailing and, and like the facade. Right. Uh, and the reason why you can't is because if it was just on style, like the Sydney opera house would never be built. The Eiffel tower would never be built because people hate it. If you judge those on quality of materials and like nuance of thought, there's no, you can't say that those two don't have those. So then you, so then it's like, okay, they have those two. I don't like the style. Maybe I know nothing about style done follows those two, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that has to be conveyed too, is that everyone's going to have their opinion. But, and, and I wouldn't say, you, you can't say style doesn't matter, but I think you have to say like what we're looking for is quality and like sophistication level. That's what we're looking for. Because you could have quality of just like one one material and it's the whole, whole facade. It's like no quality and sophistication. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are the, I don't actually have anything extra to add to that. I just thought those it was three. A, yeah. I thought it was a good refresher, especially when it comes to the traffic part of it is it's, it's just the, what I've noticed is the general public, uh, they're concerned about, uh, too much traffic, but then at the same time, you better, you better uh, have a, you better have a lot of parking on your site. So every time it's this dichotomy and this these two things that are competing against each other, right? So the the big but don't get focused on that first. Really peel it back and prove to the general public that all of these things have already been thought about. We re, we are reassuring you, and then don't do something like make sure your traffic engineer doesn't do something dumb like show a very big scary number that doesn't relate to anything. So let's say, let's say just throw it on a number. They say like, oh yeah, th th on Sundays, once this development isn't fully in place and fully occupied, it's gonna, it's gonna add 5,000 cars to the uh, Sunday, the area, this area on a Sunday. Okay, what does that mean? Like, is that, is, that, is that good, is that bad? Like, what does it compare to? What would it, have some kind of comparison that is tangible to the general public where you can show them that is that it's either not that much 
just something they can wrap their head around well, because otherwise it's like there's it's completely out of context and they'll just focus on this sort of thing that's out of context and it's a it's a scary number because there's no comparison. Yep. And, and maybe this is what could be done is like, hey, uh, per zoning code, if we if we max the site out to what we could do zoning code. Yes. This is what it would be. I'm making a number. 500,000 cars. 500,000, just a lot. And 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 we need to say that because like we need to tell people what's approved and then like what what we are allowed to do and then now here's what we're doing. Oh, we only have 300,000 cars. And you know, so th- I think that's I think that's the approach you need to do. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, moving ahead, there is a YouTube video that I'm actually going to pull up here. We're going to watch it in real time. I'm going to hit the record button. I had sent this to Al, and part of this, so I'm going to hit the record button here if you're watching on the YouTube. Uh, so saw this come across my feed on LinkedIn. If you haven't linked in with me, link in with me. And uh, basically, Adam Mayberry, who is a listener of this podcast, shared it. Uh, it had one really good point, and it missed a bunch of other ones. So I wanted to break it down with Al Okay, as we watch it. It is from Vox. Vox uh, leans one certain way. They get some things right, but they fail on other things. So here, here we go. Let me turn up the volume. So I spend a lot of time looking at houses on Zillow. And lately, I noticed that even in places where houses are usually expensive, they seem even more expensive. Like here in the San Francisco Bay Area. What has the last year been like? It's shocking. Buyers are paying. Can I pause one? Just one thing I want to point out right away. I love how the title of this is How the U.S. Made Affordable Homes Illegal. I love how they can't just focus on what really made the affordable homes illegal. What, what really made affordable homes illegal? Not Is it a country or is it the government? Well, that to me, that's well, a major well, distinction. Like you can't just attack a country. Like, come on, attack the government. Fifteen to twenty percent above asking price. Now, I had a listing in South San Francisco. Thirty-two offers. Thirty-one very unhappy buyers. For years, the Bay Area has been an extreme example of how difficult it is to find affordable housing in the U.S. It's where Silicon Valley bus drivers sleep in their cars at night because they can't afford housing near work. And where school teachers can't afford to live in the counties they teach. But it's not just the Bay Area. The lack of affordable housing is a national problem. And right now, it's worse than ever. We've seen over the last year, housing prices reach a level that they've never reached before in American history. They kind of just look like a rocket ship, you know, going to the moon. Housing prices reaching a median of $350,000 for the median American home. Okay. What else have we seen go to the moon? Like Bitcoin. Bitcoin, Lance. Okay. 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 Excellent. I'm so glad you brought up Bitcoin, right? Yeah. What else have we seen go up in craziness? Right, and I'm just supply gonna, of the U.S. dollar. I'm, I'm, uh, so, thank you, thank you, Mr. <laughs> Gore. Thank you, Mr. Gore. Um, record. I'm just gonna Google this number of dollars printed. There we uh, go. Th- in 2020, I think it's 37 percent of all dollars that ever. Yes, 22 percent. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Oh, oh, no, oh no, 40 perfect, perfect. So, so literally, between, this. Go ahead, Al. <laughs> between 22 and 40, I heard. 30 something percent, but 40% of us dollars in existence were printed in the last 12 months. 40%. E- exactly. Exactly. Right. So I'm probably jumping a little bit ahead here, but I, I think this is, this, yeah, this is, is triggering you. This is trick. This triggers me because this is what, this is what gets missed every time. Okay. We have a supply problem. That's one thing. Right. And, and that's part of what the video is showing is, is that like the uh, onerous single family zoning only is making it so, you have these um, homogen these homogenous neighborhoods that are only single family. That's one part of the problem, right? Okay, but this gal first starts off with pointing out like why are they so expensive? Well, we just pulled up a, a website that showed improved forty percent. Let me let me let me reread this to everybody. Forty percent of U.S. dollars in existence were printed in the last twelve months. This was in May of twenty twenty one. This letter or this uh, article was written. That's a lot of money. So if you increase the supply of, of dollars, right, then you increase what everything is going to cost because that's how inflation works, right? Economics 101, all right? 
because the more you print, the less you can buy with it, right? So this is the biggest part that I think that everybody missed every every single time. So I'm on I'm on Mr. Al Bitcoin Bull Gore. I figured we'd appreciate that. It's called I'm on I'm on the website. It's called a uh, buybitcoinworldwide.com forward slash dollar devaluation. And what this article goes on to say is uh, to devolve U.S. dollar devaluation since 1913. So this chart Ooh, I just love. How much rough. has the dollar devalued since 1913? The graph below shows the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar since 1913. 1913 is when the Federal Reserve, private bank, not there's nothing federal about it, which is actually a privately owned central bank, <laughs> took over the U.S. banking system. As you can see, it's been pretty much downhill since the Fed took over. In fact, the dollar has lost over 96 per one second, Mr. Gore, 96 percent of its value. That means today's dollar would be worth less than four cents back in 13, 1913. How much longer will the dollar maintain its reserve currency status at this rate? So even though there's more money, less purchasing power, yep. harder to buy those houses. Al Gore. Can we start a new company called uh, Federal Architects and then just somehow make up our own rules for what we can do that are... We can just make, make people give us jobs yep that would be great right so uh okay um so how, how does it devalue the dollar right by printing more money we just talked about how we printed 40 percent 40 percent of the existing stock in one year yep that is an insane amount of printing yep. right so printing causing printing more money causes monetary inflation this means there are more dollars in circulation but just because there's more paper money floating around that doesn't mean that the value has been created and and do you know the the i'll tell you the only reason why this isn't causing a bigger total economic disaster meltdown yeah is because the eu is doing the same thing japan's doing the same thing even, even russia and china china especially well um i didn't know about russia but what people don't know is that china has been doing this for 20 years that's why their currency has stayed so low is because literally they will print trillions of dollars and then everyone else goes like okay now it's worth like 12 cents again like it was going up <laughs> and you printed a trillion like we just can't give you our dollars for yours so it's worth 12 cents you know um yep yeah yep. or else it would all just be kablooey yep. so i wonder if they get together in meetings at jackson hole and talk about this oh man that <laughs> seems like that happened this morning call up mr powell so all you get, all you really get is price inflation. And here's an extreme example, okay? Let's say the Federal Reserve just gave everyone in America $1 million. Wouldn't that be great, Al, if everybody got... Yep. You know, yep. Unfortunately, nothing would change except prices would increase. Think about it. How much would you have to pay the, lumber, the plumber to come to your house if he's already a millionaire? A lot. A lot. And our plumbers are already expensive, right? The, the other chart I wanted to bring up on this note is... And, and again, oh, yeah. This yeah. is... This is, I it drives me nuts. It triggers me because Vox got it partially right. Literally, maybe 25% right, maybe half right, but not all the way because they missed this part of the equation. So what is the significance of 1971? On August 15th, 1971, President Richard Nixon, terrible, temporarily suspended, and it never came back, the gold standard, the rule that $35... You could literally take out, if you had a $35 bill, it didn't exist, but you could. You could take a $35 bill in and be redeemed for one ounce of gold. Ooh, that would have been nice. 1971. Yep. Wow. That would have been great investment. Literally, what is that? 30, 50 years ago. Thus, every dollar printed by the U.S. government would need to be backed by real gold held in custody by the government. This prevented the government from printing as many dollars as they wanted and thereby decreased purchasing power of the dollar. Once the gold standard was severed, inflation skyrocketed as seen in the chart below. It, it just goes, it's a check mark. Yep, you can okay. see it from the chart here. I'm recording. Yep, yep. Okay. it's crazy. Wow. Okay, so knowing that, let's get back into the video here and that we are comparing graphs of prices. And it's it, how interesting is it that like, I just pulled this graph mm. <laughs> right there, right? Okay. On, onward with the video. Those prices have made rents more expensive and have made home ownership less attainable for millions of Americans. So why is this happening? And how do we bring that rocket ship closer to Earth? We can think of today's housing prices in terms of a supply and demand problem. On the demand side, there are a few things happening. 
The first is a generational shift in who's buying homes. Millennials are the biggest generation in American history, and they're aging into their prime home buying years. On top of that, mortgage rates are at an all-time low, which means it's very cheap to borrow the money needed to buy a house. So to sum up what you're saying, the demand side, there is a bunch of money out there. So now Extra there, money. there is a whole bunch of demand. That's I boiled down your point into two seconds. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. A lot of demand. So the, again, to, to credit Vox here, you guys, they got the supply and demand problem. Correct. No, yeah. uh, no one is denying that. Yeah. That's enticed more people to buy if they can, making demand for houses even higher. The problem is that supply isn't matching that demand. From 2010 to 2019, there were fewer homes built in the U.S. than in any decade since the 1960s. In particular, the construction of smaller, entry-level housing, the kind made for first-time home buyers, has dropped dramatically. In the 1980s, those starter homes made up around 40% of all homes built. Today, it's closer to 7%. Okay, why aren't we building more houses, right? Why, what is, what is making it so hard to build houses? Al, do you have a guess? I have two guesses, government and water here. Water is specific. Water is a good one. I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe you can talk about that after this part. So one of my favorite uh, organizations is the National American Home Builders Association, NAHB.org. I pulled up uh, government regulation in the price of a new home. And they have a PDF here. So let's see, I'm on page four just to go back to it quickly. It's called housingeconomics.com, government regulation in the price of a new home, special study for housing economics. This is May of 2016 by a PhD, some, some PhD dude. The pure cost of delay in the table, and the table's above here, as you can see, pure cost of delay, meaning before they, what is the, what is the cost? What is it costing people, the developers, and ultimately the consumer in the delays before they can even buy the new house? approval right what the delay is the approval to even build the house yep we're not even getting to the amount of time which by the way is increasing by one month on average to build a house it used to be seven months now it's eight months yep. the pure cost of delay in the table refers to the estimated cost that delays of waiting for approval and complying with the development regulations would, would impose in the absence of any other type of regular regulatory cost delay also factors into the regulatory costs listed in the table through higher interest payments on acquisition and development loans that accrue over a longer period of time. On average, survey respondents said complying with regulation adds 6.6 months to the development process. That means you haven't even broke ground yet, Yeah. right? But the variation was considerable with the responses ranging from no time at all to over five years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back to the video here, right? She was, she was talking about You've had the lowest amount of starts in history it, since we since they've been recording it, right? And we just got this from the nahb.org. Yep. That there's these delay costs, right? The regulations, okay? Um, they go on in the video to talk about zoning, and, and we'll get to that part, right? The other thing I wanted to point out too is so again, I'm on NA, nahb uh, now.com, which I guess is a little different. Yeah. Uh, this article is titled, How Long Does It Take to Build a Single-Family Home? The average completion of time of a single-family home is around 8.1 months, which usually includes a little over a month from authorization to start and another seven months to finish construction. So you're looking at, right, if you add the 6.6 .6 plus the eight months, at least a year and a half. But it could take over five years yeah. to make that to yep. make that happen, right? Um Back to the video here. I don't see any mention of reducing approval times and regulation. I do see some zoning stuff. In 2018, one estimate said the U.S. housing market was 2.5 million homes short of meeting demand. By the end of 2020, it was 3.8 million. And that's driving a big part of the problem, both for renters and for people who want to be homeowners. The shortage is worst in the places where demand is highest, near good jobs, transit, and schools. And one pretty straightforward solution to that is to just build more homes in those places. But for years, there's been one big obstacle to that. We aren't allowed to. 
Take a look at this map of the Bay Area. It's showing something called zoning, or local regulations that decide what can be built where. This much of the region is zoned for residential housing. In blue are areas zoned to allow multifamily housing, while the areas shaded in pink are zoned for single-family housing only. That's 82% of all residential land in the Bay Area. What it means is that you've banned the ability for anyone to build anything other than a single unit of housing on that lot of land. And in many towns, like Atherton, they've excluded all multifamily housing from their neighborhoods. And that doesn't just mean a giant apartment building. It means things like duplexes, things like, um, you know, fourplexes, things like that are illegal in the majority of the country. This is an example of something called exclusionary zoning. It's a big part of the reason for the housing supply shortage in the U.S. And single-family-only zoning is just one way local laws limit how much housing we can build. Many places also employ height restrictions. In Cupertino, California, some areas are zoned for multifamily buildings. But they don't allow any buildings over two stories. Parking requirements are often written into zoning laws, too. Cupertino requires developers to set aside space for two parking spaces for each unit of multifamily housing. That means if you were building an apartment complex that had 100 units, you'd need to find space for 200 parking spots, which usually means buildings that size don't get built at all. They lower the number of units they're actually building so they can save space for those parking spaces. And then those units become more expensive because the land still stays the same cost to the developer. And you then get a situation where potentially more affordable units turn into higher income um, servicing units. How interesting, the parking, that it came up again. Yeah. It's like, but here's the problem. So like later on, in, so we're about halfway through the video, she go, they, they go on and they show like a, you'll see a, a part where the neighbors are complaining, right? And they kind of make it a little racist, I think. But anyway, here we go. Like this parking issue, right? So the zoning laws are saying two, 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 two parking spots per house. That makes sense, right? Husband, yeah. wife, 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 husband, husband, whatever, partners. The, but then at the same time, right? Let's say you went to go reduce that. I guarantee people are going to complain. Yeah. Well, now they're going to be on the streets. Yes. Well... I think we should rename this solving the future of housing prices because we have to get towards solutions, but we got to finish the video to okay. see what all the problems are. All right. Another feature of many zoning laws is minimum lot sizes. It means builders are legally required to allot a minimum amount of land for each home, often a large amount of land. In Cupertino, most single family lots must be at least 5,000 square feet each. Starter homes are usually around 1,400 to 1,500 square feet. And so you've basically banned all that type of housing. In Atherton, the minimum lot size for homes is one acre, more than 43,000 square feet, which makes it virtually impossible to build any kind of affordable home there. Together, exclusionary zoning laws like this push builders across the country to focus on bigger, luxury homes instead of smaller, starter homes or multifamily housing. Essentially creating gated communities in public spaces. What you are saying is that you are only allowing people who have already been able to partake in the wealth of this country and to grow their income and have access to high opportunity jobs and education to live in our neighborhoods. Historically, some of the first zoning laws in the U.S. I really like that development. Those tiny little houses, like <laughs> eight of them on one lot. Oh, the, the, sorry. Back here in the video. Let me, it, I think I just go back here. Oh, that was it. This one? Yeah. Think about how simple that is to build and to repeat. Eight cottages on one lot. 60, 60 feet. 60 feet? On the, one 60 so. foot lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can't read. I'm a retard. Uh, zoning would prevent it. Man, that's cute. Yeah, that's cute. Us were engineered for that exactly, to block people of color and, in particular, black Americans from living in predominantly white neighborhoods. Today, the laws don't explicitly mention race, but they continue to worsen segregation. In the Bay Area, the more single-family zoning in a neighborhood, the whiter it is. But all this has another effect as well. By shrinking the pot of new housing getting built, while demand keeps rising, it drives up the cost of housing for everyone. 
Changing zoning laws can be difficult, and often the biggest obstacles are the wealthiest residents. The process is usually defined by who shows up to these public meetings, and what you have is often a much whiter, wealthier crowd. The ones who come and say, I don't want this in my community. Older, retired people. That's who you have coming. And honestly, did you see the pictures? No, no, I'm, I know. And, and retired people have a longer time to build up wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And have time to to get their stupid opinions in. And I mean stupid because <clears throat> I understand that there's a lot of things that I don't know about, but I have opinions on it. Let's say abortion, that's a hot topic issue for for people. I have an opinion on it. How much do I research it? Not that much. So how much do I go out there and let my opinion known? Not that much. How much do you people know about zoning, building and things like that? Way less. That's where I have a voice. That's where I have something to say about it. That's where I put my effort yeah. into. Yeah. All these people are just, but we'll go into like, there's a reason why they're showing up for these meetings. Yeah. And, and, and I do understand. Exactly. I, I'm ho I was hoping you would touch on that point. I'm concerned about what will happen to my property values. And then there's this kind of code word, neighborhood character. Remember those teachers I mentioned who can't afford to live in the counties where they teach? Well, in 2018, one local school district proposed a solution, building affordable housing units for teachers in San Jose. It caused an uproar among San Jose parents who petitioned against changing the neighborhood. It may not seem like a big deal when one wealthy neighborhood blocks one multifamily development. The problem is that it happens all the time. Communities block new housing everywhere. People are, when they hear this kind of rhetoric, very confused because they're like, you know, why I, I don't want to live in a place with 10,000 um, apartment buildings. It doesn't even make sense to do that. And they're right. No one is saying that there should be every neighborhood in every city should be, uh, you know, uh, you know 10,000 foot apartment buildings or anything like that. But even small, gradual changes to zoning laws can have an impact. For example, allowing smaller homes on smaller lots or simply allowing duplexes would double capacity for housing in some areas. In recent years, some cities like Berkeley, Minneapolis, and Portland have taken the huge step of ending single-family zoning. But the problem is nationwide. The real fix is going to happen when these decisions start being made and start being regulated at the statewide level or at the federal level in some capacity. Today, the Biden administration is attempting to tackle exclusionary zoning through a $5 billion program that would give money to localities that remove exclusionary zoning policies. But even that may not be enough. This is more than any um, presidential administration has done on this topic, um, either Democrat or Republican. Uh, it is also very small in the face of this problem. They want to take action. They recognize how big of a deal it is, but they are not actually uh, uh, willing to create the kind of political blowback um, from often very high value voters living in suburban environments. Ending America's housing shortage will require real political willpower. And it'll require people across the country to take a look at their own neighborhoods, what gets built, who gets excluded, and how to make homeownership achievable for the millions who are shut out. Zero mention of ending the Fed. Just wanted to point that out, Mr. Gore. <laughs> yeah, zero mention. They're, they're not thinking about that, for sure. Yeah. Okay, solutions. What do you think some of the solutions are? Oh, okay. Actually, let me no. hit record here one more time then um, to continue to continue our little video that we've got going on. Uh, one of the solutions... So, number one, we, we need to have a serious discussion about the devaluation of the dollar in this country and how to correct that course. Because as from the charts that I've shown here, like it's obvious. And the fact that we don't talk about it on an everyday basis is frightening because we could... I mean, I think one of the... Uh, whatever I was looking up here, yeah, this is, ex this is exactly what we should be talking about. Is America repeating the same mistake of 1921 Weimar Germany? If you don't know what happened there, you need to Google what happened in 1921 in Weimar Germany, or Germany however you say it. People were bringing wheelbarrows full of money to bread shops to buy bread. Yep. And if you think that the people in charge are smart enough and they know history because they read history... I had to, I, sorry, I was laughing. <laughs> Honestly, think about Afghanistan right now. Oh my God, exactly. 
And and that's not to say I think a lot of people are actually happy that we're pulling out of Afghanistan. Yes. I don't think that's a contentious issue. It was how did you do this? What did you leave there besides people, assets, strangers? And 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 not only that, you people are going on a deeper level. How did this happen? And there are I've read a bunch of not a bunch. I've read some military books. I have some experience in there. I know how the chain of command works. I know what the people on the ground knows versus the captain that comes in for two seconds, looks around, and then makes some decision. What what I'm getting at is that, oh, this, if, if you knew anything about military history, mm-hmm. you would know that this was extremely preventable. Extremely preventable. So I think that's what you're going there is like, oh, there's something that's extremely preventable, but are they not going to prevent it yeah i don't know they just in afghanistan they showed that so, yeah so, could, so number one we need to we need to have a serious conversation about why the dollar is why the do, why your dollar doesn't buy you as much as what your grandparents could buy what your mom and dad could even buy um even somebody older than you just one generation gen x could buy if you're a millennial we're millennials and then the second thing the second thing we need to talk about is and, and can i say how this relates to you personally sure Let's say for some reason you do really great at business. Lance, next year, listener, next year, you somehow make a million dollars. Yeah. You retire. Go fishing. Yep. <clears throat> like this is enough to retire on. What if in 10 years the average salary is a million dollars? Exactly. <laughs> so maybe like, it's not. Yeah. It's, yeah. Unless you buy Bitcoin. There you go. So the second thing the second thing we, we need to do is the Vox... Bravo to you to understand to for you to bring to the, everybody's attention that you are... T- we. Zoning, these one-size-fits-all zoning regulations are not the way to do it, right? We need to rethink zoning. We need to have, we need to make it so it's more flexible. A better um, framework. A better framework, right? Great. What about deregulating? So that's a that is deregulating. That is streamlining. That is like it's it's and Vox is a left-wing pop, uh, publication. So for them to recognize that but then also fail to recognize like how do we make it so developers can build quicker how do we make it so are some of these codes getting to the point sprinklers in every single 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 family home perfect example uh solar panels in boulder county on every single family new home perfect example like Uh, denver green roofs denver the green roof uh mandate yep so like at what point are some of these getting so onerous that they make they're exasperating your devalued dollar purchasing power that you can't you can't buy a certain yep home. and then also because they're not solving the foundational framework <clears throat> inclusionary zoning requirements where you either have to provide it or pay money so again it's it's literally just adding another cost you're just adding another cost. yep yep the third thing the third thing that we need that we need to talk about and we need to encourage is the codes right now don't make it easy for people to innovate. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yes. So therefore, how are we ever going to automate the building process? Or getting semi-automated, right? Right. You have people like Elon Musk. Do you see Elon today? He, they applied for um, to be a tech uh, energy provider in Texas. It's Are amazing. you serious? Yes. You should look that up. I figured you'd like that. Um so, uh, pulled, so on the on that note of automation, the third the third leg of this that I think is is critical to this is like how uh, so I pulled up this article how how construction automation is reshaping the industry. Well, this is from two years ago. We've had a couple three D printed buildings. I know people love we love to talk about that kind of stuff, but really what it comes down to is like <clears throat> we have to start somehow encouraging, and not even through legislation, but just through the market forces, hopefully. How do how do we automate this? How do we get to the point where we we can build faster? How do we cut the eight months it takes to build a house down to four months now? That okay? I think there are two broad physical locations for solutions. One is the existing cities, right? I think that's going to be the hardest. I think that's going to be the hardest for two reasons. No, maybe one reason: density. The reason is density. And people have an existing stake in what's going on. So every time you have density, you increase complexity. So that means when you're submitting this stuff, you're not submitting to one person. You're submitting to 
a bunch of different people mm -hmm. who all need to pass that around, who all need to coordinate schedules, who all need to look at it, review it. They need for whatever their specific thing that they're doing, they need, oh, I want whatever I'm doing to have a bigger buffer, to have more room around it, to be, you know, you know, and they have all their reasons for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they, they submit that comment and everyone submits that comment and be like, and then you go, oh, you're all conflicting. You are all conflicting with each other. You all say that you're the authority and you are literally saying things that cannot co coexist. Verse, <clears throat> and that's what happens in a dense yes. bureaucratic yes. system, right? I don't think that that is solvable. I think it's a fundamental nature of density is complexity. Yes. Okay. Verse, hey, <clears throat> someone, let's just say out more in, in, in the county, it's one person and they have to think about sewer water building. They have to think about all of it. All they have, they want the sewer to be bigger, but then they realize, oh, for this project, that's not going to work. I guess they don't need their hole tolerance because that's just, you know, a margin of safety. Um, that's kind of in excess, make all the decisions in their head, coordinate with themselves, get back to you. Oh my God. You're building. Yep. Okay. The other reason too, is because I'll use your, your home for example, right? You live in a nice neighborhood and across your street, it's a wide open, beautiful piece of land. I look at it yep. every morning and people could say, and this is, this is why they get upset at, at, oh, people are, people are showing up and saying they don't want something in their neighborhood because in that piece of land, I could say, let's build a multifamily townhome complex right there. It will fit, get a hundred people in there that on a societal level. That's the justification. But everyone that bought there said, yeah, I didn't buy this lot for that. I bought that lot knowing that that piece of land is there so that I have space. I, my dogs can run. I can walk around like, so you're introducing a whole contentious issue, right? The, the other problem of density is besides that bureaucracy, there is um, something to be said about the simplifications of, of solutions, meaning like, oh, this solution, this house, people hate suburbia, but it's not that bad. Um, I have flexibility in that floor plan. I, I'm, I'm essentially repeating like a two bedroom or a three bedroom house, two car house in different variety of forms, but they all fit on this lot. Everyone knows what they're doing. We're all using a TJI system. We're all using these type of windows, you know. Mm -hmm. Once you say, I think it's great actually. I actually think it's great for them to allow ADUs in the city. And I think that's great for people to do too, because now you're diversifying your income, you're yep. building up your wealth, you already own the land. Yep. I think it's great, but that costs more per square foot because each thing is unique because there's a shed over here. You're putting it in the backyard. This backyard is- it's, yeah, it's not as simple as an equation as, as people like to think about it. Exactly. It's a short answer. Yeah. Exactly. By the so, way, Al did, a pre, Al did his thesis on that. Yes, I did. Um, and then you still got to go through that bureaucratic system, right? Right now in Longmont, uh, you can actually, you can have an ADU. They've always allowed them. They're encouraging them, kinda. $20,000 tax on top of it. Good for them. Good for, great. Way to shoot yourself right in the foot. Yep. So nobody's building them. Yeah. <laughs> I swear it's a shovel to their own face sometimes. Yeah. That's how bad it is. Okay. So I support that 100%, but it's gonna be a slow churn, right? The solution is, what are we doing in native land? Meaning like outside there. And this is why the real solution will happen out there. Every big business that's awesome, right? Always gets upset by its competitor. And everyone thinks it's not going to happen because a big business, you got plenty of money. You got all the smart people. You got all the contacts. Facebook got, is never going down. You have all the contacts in the industry. You have all the smart people and you have all the money. And you've lobbied your way to sort of a yep. corporate uh, crony monopoly. Yep. Right. So how do you lose? Like people don't think, how do you lose? And if you just rewind this conversation 10 minutes, you can probably apply that same logic to business from government to businesses. That's yep. how you lose. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the new solution is going to be out there. Not, so don't lose focus on the old solution, but that's where the new focus is going to be. How do you make that appealing? And there's multiple mm -hmm. different ways. And I think the big crux is driving time. I think people don't want to drive. Yes. I, I think that's huge. Now, Will, does driving time, uh, is that less of a pain if you're not driving and the car's driving? 
maybe, maybe traffic, um, is that going to be an issue or will tunnels help solve that? Like if I live where I live, or we just talked about this on last week's episode, even though we said we're just trying to be contrarians in the sense of people are working from home and it's not the one size fits all. However, there's still going to be, I recognize that it is valuable for a large segment of society. I'm just saying it's not all one size fits all. So that factor. Yep. So, um, also let's just say the tunnels work out. If I live out in Firestone, if through those tunnel systems, I'm 15 minutes away from Boulder, Fort Collins, Denver, like the people that would flock out into those urban areas would be massive. If all you have to do is drive four miles to a tunnel and then you can go 150 miles per hour, right? But what what's crazy, I, I was on a guest on a podcast, is that a lot of people think that, hey, architects, architects shape the world. There's levels to these games and you have to get good at architecture then you know, know something about construction. Now you're into real estate, politics, mm-hmm. policy, mm-hmm. like there's levels to these games and like the solution to architecture and density might be cars driving themselves. I'm not saying we should rely on that, but I'm, I'm maybe saying is like, man, I, I feel like the low density solution is the one that will actually win out. Because you don't have the bureaucratic, you don't have your neighbors telling you you can't do what you can't do. So it's the only opening. And and I, yeah, and I'm only Literally. saying cars, but like there might be other solutions of how you bring entertainment out there. But still, I mean, Netflix is amazing, you know. Like, yeah. um, even though I don't have it, but who would have predicted that that we would have a surge out of the cities into the suburbs? Based on what we learned in school the whole time, the whole and when we were in college in two, you know in the early two thousands, that's all we heard the urban the urbification the urban urbanification of the world right. Yep. Every and now all of a sudden we're seeing decentralization happen. Yep. Know what I think is another solution because like I, I mean you have a vested interest in in helping. And let's be problem. honest, people. I'm telling you. I had a Randall O'Toole. You should, I can't remember what Monday morning coffee episode this was, but I spoke with Randall O'Toole. I should have him on the podcast again. He is a uh, free market guy. And one of the, he he has studies that have proven that people do not actually, people say they want to live in high density areas. They don't. They want their space. They want their space. But know what people also want that I don't think the market is responding for? They want uh, old, larger growth trees and shading. Everyone in the city and all those neighborhoods, those trees are huge. Mm-hmm. Like that's another opportunity and it can be a free market opportunity. Like someone's driving in and you, and everyone knows, I mean, we planted the trees that you're required to plant. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost more, but it might make a huge difference. Like that nature aspect might be a missing ingredient that could be tipping. Don't you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that no, no, people want people have a harking to go back to nature. I mean, the the national parks are, are oh, experiencing flooded. they're flooded with people now since COVID. Every you know, it's all that factor. Um, I'm more interested to know. So, I, anything anything else to add to the whole mm. examining this? I and mean, what were we going to title this now? Uh, the solving the future of housing prices. Boom! I think that'll be the title of today's episode. Uh, I would love to hear from our bestie and how he would solve problems. Let's hear from Nick. Nick reads. Hello, best friends. I hope you all had a great week this week. A reading. At every moment in life, there's a fork in the path you are on. And you can choose to go right or you can choose to go left. Every right you take leads you closer to your best possible destiny. Every left leads you further away from it. These forks are not just decisions that lead to actions, like saying yes to a job offer, but they're thoughts that lead to beliefs, like blaming your father for ruining your life. Your life today is the sum total of your choices. So if you're not happy with them, look back at your choices, and start making different ones. Even if you're struck by lightning and injured, you made choices that led you to that spot at that particular time, and you can choose how to feel about it afterwards. 
you could choose to be angry at the bad luck that you got struck. Or you could be grateful that you survived. Kevin Hart. Toodles! Kevin Hart. Haven't heard from that guy for a while. Yeah. Kevin Hart's great. He's awesome. He is hilarious. Doesn't your wife love him? I think your wife loves him. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I listened to his audio book uh, kind of sporadically. It was just like he's very positive. Get your shit done. Yep. Work out. Get be awesome. Yep. Kind of guy. Crush. Yep. Do your thing. Let's see if the team can crush an A-R-E Jeopardy. Bring him down, Al. All right, question A. In a sprinklered building, what is the required separation between a group B and another group B occupancy in hours? Hmm. Got it, guys? Make sense? Is it A, one hour, B, none, C, two hours, D, not permitted? All right. A, 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 it is B. Yeah. None. Hey, the two architects I got figured it. that was easy. Yeah. In a non-sprinklered building, what is the required separation between group B and another group B occupancy in hours? Is it A, one hour, B, none, C, two hours, or D, not permitted? Yeah, it should be pretty easy. Oh, okay, good. You got to be paying attention. Okay, one hour, one hour. What do you say? Perpendied. One hour. It is none. It is also none. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. hilarious. Gresh just said the answer. All right, I've got the tough ones. When a fired clay masonry veneer is used in conjunction with a reinforced concrete frame, Appropriately located relief joints should be provided at regular intervals to accommodate what two factors? A, seismic vibrations. B, frame shortening. C, shrinkage of the masonry. D, expansion of the masonry. What's that? Yeah. So basically, so when a fired clay masonry veneer is used in conjunction with a reinforced concrete frame appropriately located relief joints should be provided at regular intervals to accommodate what two factors a seismic vibrations b frame shortening c shrinkage of the masonry or d and d expansion of the masonry so two of those what two factors you need to account for when you're using uh that kind of masonry with a concrete with reinforced concrete frame and we have D. Wait a minute. You just picked one? Oh, you got to pick two. D and B. D and B. Okay, D and B. Uh, C and D. And Bailey? A and D. The correct answer is B and D. Who had B and D? Yay, Tyler! <laughs> Number four. Stability-related failures of an incomplete framework during construction are generally caused by what? A, equipment failures, B, design errors, C, material deficiencies, or D, inadequate temporary bracing. Yes, stability failures of an incomplete framework during construction are generally caused by what? A, equipment failures, B, design errors, C, material deficiencies, or D, inadequate temporary bracing. Uh, D, you got C, D, and D. The correct answer is D. What do we got? Who won? We got one, one, one. Dang. Three and three. Okay. I guess we're tie-breaking. Who's winning? reading the tiebreaker? Okay. Got the nicer shirt. Yes. YouTube quality shirt here. Don't forget to eat the mic. Okay. Everyone ready? All right. If you are designing a large building or a building in a warm climate, you'll want to spec a roof with an SRI, which is solar reflectance index value of at least, and guess a number. Got to be within five, a range of five. Range of five. Range of five. Range of five. Fifteen, no. Tyler, what do you got? Forty-seven. Forty-seven, no. Bailey, 31, no. Tyler's the closest. 
Oh, giving hints. Okay. No. 60. No. 50. No. You, Bailey? <laughs> 49? No. Jason's new answer is the closest. There you go. So, 65. No. Keep going. <laughs> no. Jason wins. Yeah, the correct answer is 78. Now you know. I'll pass it back off. Burn that in your brain. 78. <clears throat> That's it for today's show. Lance, what uh, do you have? If you are watching on YouTube, do not forget to hit the like button. Leave us a comment. Subscribe. And if you're listening terrestrially on, YouTube, on the iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. We will see you next week.